And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 12, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as we contemplate, consider these things today, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit to fill us with all insight and knowledge and wonder at the uh, things that you have revealed to us that you have shown to us in this, in this book. So give us your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from anything that's not helpful or in error, and strengthen us in this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, for most of us who live close to town, the glory of the night sky is significantly obscured. On the clearest night, we can see the moon, we can see some of the brighter stars, maybe a few, but brighter than these are the light from surrounding houses, from signs, from street lights. Lights other than stars light up our night sky. When you get far from the city, however, away from the major population centers where there isn't much man-made light, the nighttime sky is a canvas of innumerable wonders. Before electricity, our ancestors were much more in tune with what was going on in the night sky than we tend to be today. Now, telescopes give us pictures of things deep in space, which ancient man could not see, but the ordinary details of the night sky aren't as big of, of a part of our nightly experience as it was for uh, man before electricity because they could not only see the stars, but they knew their names. I love to go to the planetarium. I love to look up at the ceiling, and when they broadcast or, or, or shine the lights on the ceiling, um, you, you're told, well, that's a crab, and that's a lion, and you say, yeah, okay, that, I guess. If, you're, if you say it is, then that must be a crab or a lion. Uh, but they knew, they connected the dots, and they recognized pictures among the stars. Um, these things were commonly understood, and they were named, and they were accepted. It was part of the furniture of the world. In fact, even though that these pictures have been perverted by astrologists, and all sorts of pagan superstitions have been added to the pictures in the night sky, the constellations in the night sky, the Bible says God created the constellations. And I want to be very clear, uh, I'm not in any way telling you astrology is a good thing. I'm not in any way saying you should look at your horoscope and figure out what you're gonna to wear today or what you eat for lunch. I'm not in any way that that is perverted and pagan. However, the Bible does say that God created the constellations. In Job 9, Job says he made the bear, what's Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, he made Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. So the blank spaces in the, in the southern sky. Uh, so God not only laid out the stars, but the spaces in between them. And Amos 5.8 repeats this. It's twice in the Bible. It says God created these things. God made the constellations and he designed them. He deliberately put pictures in the sky and he named them. Psalm 147 says, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. 
So from deep antiquity, probably even pre-flood times, men saw pictures in the sky. And it's no coincidence that they saw 12 constellations ruling the sky at a time where 12 tribes of Israel ruled on earth. And later we get 12 apostles. I referred last week to Joseph's dream where he saw his brothers, the heads of the tribes of Israel in a vision as stars. He saw his mother and his father as moon and sun. This is a dream of Joseph and, and uh, heavenly bodies, lights in the sky and rulers on earth in biblical uh, symbolism always go together. Then when you read about stars, when you read about moon and sun, you're reading about rulers. And this is brought together in Joseph's dream as well as many other places. In Genesis 1, when God created the lights in the heavens, he said, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. God set up the lights in the heavens to govern our time. Now we understand the last few parts of that, seasons, days, years. We still have this in common with the ancients. The sun and the moon still provide our calendar. We mark our days and we mark our hours by the rising and the setting and the position of the sun in the sky. B months are marked by the waxing and the waning of the moon. And then we mark our years by the position of the sun uh, uh, relative to the earth and the earth's position relative to the sun. It's now 2021 because we've made another lap around the sun. And that's why that's, that's how we mark our years. We've even named our days after the heavenly bodies. We have Sunday and Moon Day and Tuesday, which is Mars Day. Tuva is, is Anglo-Saxon for Mars. And we have Woden's Day. Woden's, it, Woden is Germanic for Mercury. And we have Thor's Day. Um, Thor existed before Marvel invented it, by the way. Some of you may, some of you younger people may not know that, but there is Thor and Thor's Day, um, which Thor is Jupiter. Thor is uh, Germanic for Jupiter. And then Frigg's Day, Friday, uh, Frigg was the wife of Woden, Venus. Uh, and then we have Saturn Day. So the heavenly bodies govern. Uh, the, the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars all, all govern. And by the way, I don't, I don't get any upset stomach or ulcers by the fact that we have a Thor's day and a Saturn day or a Mercury day or a Mars day. None of these things bend me out of shape uh, that there are pagan names assigned to the days because all of the planets and all of the days and everything in the whole universe belongs to Jesus. He's conquered all of it and all of it belongs to him. And so I also say this around Christmas. Can we have a Christmas tree? Can we carve a pumpkin? Can we dye eggs? You know what? All the trees and all the eggs and all the pumpkins belong to Jesus also. We have evacuated these things of their pagan uses and their pagan intents and they are now for our use. We take dominion over these things and we use them and we delight in them because Jesus is king over everything, and he has conquered all. So uh, that, that part makes sense. The part that, that God says these sun, moon, stars, these are for days, these are for years, these are for seasons, that makes sense. But Jesus, I mean, I'm sorry, God, when he created these things, also said they're for signs. Well, how does that work? Well, the prophets often refer to the sun, moon, and stars, and God uses heavenly bodies to teach his people lessons. Three times, God points Abraham to the stars, and he says, evaluate the stars, consider the stars, see if you can count them, and, uh, and, and this is how large your family will be. This is how numerous your descendants will be. Consider the stars, God says to Abraham. On the day of Pentecost, 
Peter quotes Joel, the prophet Joel, and, and he says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath. Well, we're reading in the section of Revelation where uh, John is being shown wonders in the heavens above. He's being shown signs. The Bible refers to these things so often that we're able to develop a kind of biblical astronomy, not astrology. I'm not, I'm not saying astrology. I'm not embracing astrology. I want to be very clear about that. I don't want anybody to go away and say, Pastor Dwayne said we can read the horoscope and live our lives by it, because that's not true. But God put pictures in the sky, and God made the constellations, and just as uh, the scriptures themselves can be perverted, there's nothing in all of creation that can't be that can't be perverted. Uh, however, we are able by in, in the scriptures to develop a kind of biblical astronomy to to learn the symbolism of the heavenly bodies, how they relate to empires and kings and saints and angels and demons and festival seasons, and not to misread them. One very important uh, place where we must not misread these signs is that when we read in the prophets that the sun is darkened or that the moon is darkened or that stars fall from the sky. We don't read those things and we think, oh, physically the, the sun is going to fall out or the, or, the, or the stars are going to fall out of the sky. But we look for the symbolic application because heavenly bodies in the scriptures are always associated with rule, with governance, with kingdoms. So when God darkens the suns and he darkens the moon, he is darkening. He's putting the lights out of the kingdoms of this world. And he replaces them with the light of the sun of righteousness, Malachi tells us in Malachi 4.2. The sun, S-U-N of righteousness, is Messiah. He's the, he's the king. So he's darkening the lights of this world. And then we have a new day uh, arising with the coming of the son of righteousness. Well, these things are all over the Christmas story. We're on the second Sunday of Christmas. I think some of you are still wondering, why are you still singing fa-la-la-la-la? And, and still, well, we're, what, what is today? Day 10? Day 9? Where, where, where are we? What are we doing? 10! Got it! We're on day 10. I knew that. Of Christmas. And uh, we're still celebrating for, for a couple of more days. At Christmas, we remember the shepherds watching their flocks under the light of the stars and under the light of the moon when a new brightness, a new heavenly brightness shined around them. An angel appears. A new day has come. The entire heavenly choir lights up the night for those shepherds. And we also read about the magi who come from the far east, who find their way to Jerusalem, bearing gifts for the king, following a star. You see, these ancient men could study the stars and the planets, and they believed that the whole world was connected. If there was, there was something going on in the heavens, then there must be something important going on on earth. And there was enough information revealed about God in the heavens that Gentiles far from Israel could draw conclusions about what God was doing on earth. That's what led the Magi to Jesus. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, the question that I have, I don't have a completely satisfactory answer for myself, is how do, these, uh, how do these stars and signs work today? Because God said these things are for signs. Well, primarily, uh, we understand the way that they illuminate the scriptures and how sim these sun, moon, and stars are used in the Bible. That's the number one most important application is that we see how God in his prophets uses these things. Um, and I also know for sure that God's law strictly 
forbids using these things to tell the future or looking at the stars uh, for, for omens or to think that our fates are guided by the stars. Every empire that kneeled down and worshiped the sun, moon, and stars was, was eliminated. Egypt did it, Persia did it, uh, Babylon worshiped sun, moon, and stars, Rome, Greece. They all worshiped and saw their fates in the heavens. They all saw their fates in the stars and they were all destroyed. It does seem to me, though, that, that many of these things, uh, many of these good things about uh, the, the signs in the heaven that God mentions when he creates the sun, moon, and stars, these things were taught under the stewardship of angels. The angels were the guardians of the old world. When you start reading the first chapters of Genesis, uh, you see that very quickly uh, the, the lineage of, of Cain, the family of Cain, they figure out metallurgy, they figure out instruments, they figure out agriculture, they figure out all of these things. How did they get there so quickly? But under the tutelage, under the stewardship of angels who taught them these things. Now, in the post-resurrection world, man has been elevated over creation, so now we don't have angels as tutors, and perhaps the pictures in the sky that God put there were, served a greater purpose before the resurrection of Christ, in the old pre-resurrection creation, the old world before Christ. That's my answer, and that's what I'm, I'm, that's the conclusion that I'm working on. And now that we have the special, complete revelation of the written word of God, some things have faded into the past, part of a less mature phase of history. But what does remain is this. The fact is that we serve a creator who put pictures in the sky. I mean, that, that just stop and think about that for just a minute, that God put pictures in the sky and has also created an entire symbolic world of patterns and types, which he's communicated through the stories of the Bible, through the histories of real men and real women who live these things out that include uh, uh, mountains and trees, land and sea, water and fire, land animals, animals that fly and swim and precious metals and precious gems and all these things. He's built phenomenal things, marvels and wonders into, he's baked them into the heavens and the earth so that we don't live in a flat, gray, cold, clinical impersonal universe. But we share this world with, with uh, wonders, with, with mysteries, with the supernatural spiritual environment, with angels and, and demons, dragons and beasts, if we read Revelation 12 through 15. Understanding this world and living in gratitude for this world and knowing what God is doing here requires us to grow in the knowledge and the power of the biblical use of these symbols. Uh, right theology depends upon a right understanding of these things. Or else, how do you, how do you understand and how do you figure out how the blood of one man buys the whole world and how water puts you in union with that man uh, and, and how bread and wine uh, restore and renew your covenant with that man who reigns from heaven over the whole world. Uh, that's the world we live in. That's the reality, that his blood really and truly covers your sins and buys, buys the whole world, and you have forgiveness in him. How does that work? It's not a make-believe world, but that's our reality. And that's the reality that John reveals to us from in, in these things that he sees in, in the heavens, and he shows us in these next several chapters of of Revelation. So that is an introduction to our next several weeks in getting into these things. All of this is relevant now because John is giving us a number of star signs. 
images that he saw in the heavens. Chapter 12, he says, a great sign appeared in heaven, verse 1. And in verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. I imagine that he sees the constellations all animated and playing out this great drama. At creation, God established the lights in the heavens for signs. And it's these signs that John is witnessing and recording for us to understand, for us to interpret, for us to meditate on and to absorb. Let's quickly remember where we are in the book of Revelation. Reset quickly. Uh, Jesus invites John in the book of Revelation up to heaven to see how things run in God's throne room to see what heavenly worship looks like. And then the book of the covenant is taken up. Jesus is the only one who can open the book of the covenant because he's the only one who's obeyed it and, and kept the covenant perfectly. And as the seven seals of the book are opened, the preliminary curses of covenant breaking start to fall on the land of Israel. And then once the book is open, the seven angels begin to trumpet out the contents of the book, which include symbolic details about the impending destruction of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple, which is coming, as well as encouragements about the success of the church and, and the protection of the church and the, and the blessing for faithfulness throughout all of this calamity. That's what the trumpets... Uh, blast out. Seven angels blow seven trumpets, heralding the events to come. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, a choir in heaven responds that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, from chapter 12 through chapter 15, we get a series of signs in the heavens that tell us how this takes place. How do the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ? How does the Lord Jesus achieve this victory? Well, we took a high-level view of, of Revelation 12 last week, uh, the vision of the woman and the dragon and her son, and we just skimmed right across the top, and we left so many things uncovered and so many things that uh, were important that I, didn't, I just didn't get to. And because this is so densely layered, I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to rob you. I want you to get all your money's worth. I want you to get all the toothpaste out of the tube and be able to use it all. So I'm going to pass through again and just pick up a few more things that we weren't able to cover last week. The broad strokes of this vision in Revelation 12 are easy to interpret. The woman clothed with sun and moon with stars on her head. Her crown is the 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel. She is, she is Israel. She is the archetypal woman um, that we see throughout the scripture. She bears her son, who is the king, ruling with a rod of iron, and he is the Lord Jesus. The dragon doesn't require any guessing. We don't have to scratch our heads and figure out who that is at all because he, he's named. In fact, he has seven names in just a few chapters here. He's the serpent. He's Satan. He's the devil. He's the deceiver. He's the accuser. So the woman is in labor. The dragon waits to devour her child as soon as he is born, and the son is caught up to heaven. The woman is preserved in the wilderness. And then war breaks out in heaven, and from there, the plot gets a little bit more complicated, and there are some additional themes to figure out, which we'll try to do this morning. So today, some more information and details and instruction from the woman the dragon, and the sun. Let's take the woman quickly. After the woman's son is taken up to God's throne, the woman retreats to the wilderness to be nourished by God for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. This time has already been mentioned. It's already been referenced a couple times in Revelation. Sometimes it's called 42 months. 42 months 
is also three and a half years. Uh, sometimes it's called a time, times, and half a time. A year, years, two years, and half a year is three and a half years. Uh, such in uh, verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time, a year, two years, and, and half a year. Daniel also uses, if you're familiar with Daniel's work, Daniel also uses that same terminology, a time, times, and half a time. So this three and a half year time period gets mentioned as 1,260 days, it's 42 months, it's time, times, half a time, and it keeps coming up. Now, we're familiar in, in, in the scriptures with periods of 40s, right? We've got 40 days and 40 nights and 40 years. Those are all very familiar to us. But what about this three and a half year reference? And why does this, why does this keep coming up? What does this refer to? Well, my understanding is the, it goes back to the first reference to three and a half years, and that's a reference to Elijah's time in the wilderness. If you remember back in Elijah, uh, King Ahab was ruling, and King Ahab was incredibly wicked, and the land was covered with idolatry, and Elijah prays that the heavens would be shut up, that there would be a drought on the land, and there is for three and a half years. And during that time of, of, of three and a half years of drought, Elijah was protected, he was fed, he was provided for, and he had opportunities to serve and minister. And then at the end of that three and a half years, there was a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Yahweh defeated the prophets of Baal. He washed them out of the land with a refreshing rain, and he restored rain to the land. There are other similar three and a half year periods. The ministry of Jesus was three and a half years, the time leading up to the final destruction of Jerusalem, the period of, of persecution and siege leading up to AD 70, that was three and a half years. So these three and a half year periods throughout the Bible and throughout history are times where it seems that wickedness has ascended to dominance. That's what it looks like. It looks like wickedness has ascended, but is in the process of being judged by God. God loosens the leash on wickedness, and you think that wickedness is winning. You think that it's getting away with something, but in fact, when God loosens the leash, what is happening is that the wicked are becoming sick on the thing that they want so badly. They're getting a full belly of what they are pursuing. They're running it out to the end. That's what's happening. And so while it looks like wickedness is dominant, actually what's happening is wickedness is being judged and it's ultimately defeated. And of course, what's happening in Elijah's, I'm sorry, yeah, Elijah's three and a half years is that Elijah during this time is being fed, he's being protected, he's being provided for, he has opportunities to serve while wickedness looks to be dominant. And at the end, wickedness is judged. That's what's taking place in Revelation 12. The woman is protected, she's being fed, she's being covered for this three and a half years while it looks like the dragon is running around rampant. So, so what is the instruction here? What does this mean? Well, you see, when the wicked triumph, it's never permanent. They have a timer running. Look at verse 12, the end of verse 12. Uh, the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. When wickedness, when, when God lets loose on the leash of wickedness, a timer starts running. Uh, uh, their, their time is short and, 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 and they're headed for judgment. It's, it's gonna happen soon. And then the flight of the righteous is not a sign that they're abandoned, but that they're being nourished and covered 
by God. That's what's, that's what's in, in, embedded in this, in this instruction on this time, why this time keeps coming up, that God knows the beginning and the end of all things. And when you look around, you think, is this the way it's going to be forever? The answer is no, this is not the way it's going to be forever. Uh, it may be for a time and times and half a time, but it's not going to be forever. And uh, you are not abandoned. You are being protected and covered during this time. Well, there's a war in heaven, and we're going to get to that very soon. There's a war in heaven where the dragon is cast to the earth, and then he begins a fresh assault on the woman. Look at verse 13. And then when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. She's given two wings of an eagle to be protected from the presence of the serpent. Well, what, what is this? What is this eagle reference? Eagles are unclean animals, and various beasts in the prophetic uh, scriptures represent Gentile kingdoms. If you go back to Daniel, you see all the kingdoms are represented by these unclean beasts. This eagle here could be the Roman Empire, which begins as a protector of the church, and only later becomes an attacker of the church. But throughout the book of Acts, whenever the Jews persecute the church, the apostles appeal to the Romans and they are delivered. That's what gets Paul out of trouble in Jerusalem. He appeals to Rome. Now this will change over time because we'll see in the next few chapters in Revelation that the protector beasts become devouring beasts. They become attacking beasts. But all the empires start off as protectors. Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the Syrian empire, and Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach so that in, in a generation when Israel is taken into captivity in Assyria, that they have a soft place to land. Nineveh is converted. Everyone becomes worshipers of Yahweh in Nineveh, and, and Assyria becomes a safe place. The same thing happens in Babylon. God says, I turn the whole world over to Nebuchadnezzar, and you better go serve him. You better do what he says. And, and Babylon is a, is a protector. Empire. Persia begins as a hospitable empire through the work of Esther, right? Um, later, all of these empires become warped because they're discipled by the dragon. They start to look like him. Uh, but the same thing happens with Rome. Rome begins as this, this eagle who protects the woman. He begins, uh, uh, Rome begins as a protector kingdom, but he becomes later a devouring kingdom. He becomes an attacker kingdom after he's discipled by the beast, which is instructive for us because it then should be no surprise to us that an empire that at, at, for a time protects the church would turn against the church and then become her attacker and her devourer, which means it's happened so many times in history that we should be prepared for this to happen again. We should be prepared for the place that we love to call our home to be a place that is opposed to us, a place that is attacking us. And then we think, you know, but I love this place so much. Well, yes, I understand, but it's changed. Its, it's position has changed towards you. It's no longer a protective empire. It's no longer a guardian beast. It's now a devourer beast. It's now an attacking beast. And we have to then make a decision, which kingdom are we, are we uh, most, uh, do, do we have most allegiance for? Which, which, which kingdom uh, has our heart? In which kingdom does our future rest? Uh, well, this, this 
uh, eagle that protects the woman seems to be seems to be Rome. One last thing about the woman is that she, who is so obviously Israel, giving birth to the Messiah, she becomes the church who is persecuted. Faithful Israel traces her lineage down through the church. The church is the heir of God's promises to Abraham. In Galatians 3, if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there's this fluid continuity, a very fluid continuity between the people of the old covenant and the people of the new in this archetypal woman. She is the woman who gives us Messiah. She's also the woman whose offspring are the brethren of Messiah. She's also the woman who becomes the bride of Christ. She's an archetypal woman. Um, it doesn't work if you try to press this into thing. well, is Mary the woman? Well, Mary becomes the mother of Messiah and then she becomes his bride that doesn't work that way. But what we have is archetypal, the symbol of woman. And of course, uh, the woman who gives us Messiah is also woman, the bride who, is the, who becomes the bride of Christ. We see the sign of the woman, and then we see the sign of the dragon. He has a number of titles and a number of images associated with him. We're just going to explore a few of them. He has seven heads, 10 horns, seven crowns. Later on, we'll see the, uh, the kingdoms of this world depicted as a beast with seven heads. The rulers and powers of this world imitate the dragon and they're discipled by him. So they look like him. So they become beastly kingdoms. This is, this is consistent with da Daniel's visions of the, of the empires. He has seven heads. We get seven names for him in the book of Revelation. And these seven names all give us insight into his tactics and into his operations. Um, back in chapter eight, uh, he's called Wormwood. If you'll remember, he's the star that falls from heaven and pollutes the waters of the temple, the temple sanctuary so that the temple is no longer the source of life-giving water, but the temple becomes a source of pollution. The temple is a source of heresy and, and poison. In chapter nine, he has two more names. He's called Abaddon and Apollyon. Abaddon is the Hebrew word for spoiler. Apollyon is the Greek word for the same, uh, destroyer, spoiler. It's the equivalent. Uh, he is Abaddon, he is Apollyon. He is the destroyer and the corrupter of both the Hebrew and the Greek, of both the land and the sea. He doesn't have any particular allies. He's not making friends here. He counts no one as his beloved. They're all his flunkies and hirelings. He just uses them and uses them up and destroys them. And they are destroyed in the process. So those are three titles for this, for this enemy that we get before chapter nine. I'm, I'm sorry, before chapter 12. And then in verse nine, we get several more titles. Uh, verse nine, we read, so that great dragon was cast out. So dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth. So we get these several titles here in just one verse. And again, the purpose of studying these titles is to understand his tactics, it's to understand his operations. So let's look at each one of them very quickly. It's the dragon here. He's the dragon who seeks to devour the child and makes war on the woman and her child. It's always been the desire of the dragon to attack the seed, the offspring. This is his operation. He doesn't launch a frontal attack on the man. He doesn't, he doesn't direct his attack on the provider and the protector. No, the dragon sneaks around the back door. He wants to pick off the weakest. He goes after the bride and he goes after the seed. He doesn't necessarily want to kill them. 
He, he can if he needs to, but he doesn't necessarily want to kill them. He wants to steal the bride and he wants to corrupt the seed. He wants to use the bride to produce more ungodly seed. Remember, Abimelech didn't want to kill Sarah. Back in Abraham and Sarah's time, and uh, Abimelech took Sarah. He didn't want to kill her. He wanted to take her so he could raise up his ungodly children with her. The same thing happens to Rebecca. This, this always happens where various serpents rise up in the scriptures to steal the woman, to seduce the bride, and to raise up ungodly offspring. Later in Egypt, Pharaoh doesn't kill all the Hebrew babies, right? He just wants the baby boys. He wants to destroy the Hebrew boys. He wants to leave the girls alive. Why? So he can use them to raise up his own Egyptian serpent seed. And the dragon hasn't changed at all. None of this has changed. He still wants to attack the bride and corrupt the seed. That's his, that's his mission, to attack the bride and corrupt the seed. Why does he want this? Why does he want the children? Why does he want the offspring? Because he wants to steal our future. If he can steal our children, he can steal our future. He thinks he can prolong his reign on earth if he can take our future from us, and then he has their, their future. And he claims that he can do a better job of raising them than you. So, so turn them over to me, he says. Give them to me. Let me educate them. Let me medicate them. Let me teach them about their identity. You can't be trusted making these decisions. These aren't your children. These are my children. These are my offspring. So he wants to corrupt our children so he can steal our future. So what we need is faithful Adams, uh, men who won't allow the dragon to run rampant, who won't turn over their seed to the dragon. We need Adams who will slay the dragon and protect the bride and the seed. You fathers who don't turn your children over to the state are being faithful Adams. Providing your children with a Christian education, you're, you're protecting the seed, but it doesn't stop there. That's not the only way that he can corrupt them. You have to be aware of other ways that the dragon wants to corrupt your seed. And if he can corrupt your children, he steals your future and you don't have a future, but he does. He's stolen your precious offspring. So that's what the dragon does. That's what the dragon is all about. He's also called the serpent. The serpent is the seducer of the bride. He does this with Eve by undermining confidence in what her husband said to her and what God had said. Everything that Eve knew about obeying God, she learned from her husband. It came to her through Adam. And Satan comes at once to tear down both her husband's authority and God's authority. And he does it with one question. He says, has God really said? He teaches her to doubt at the very point she was supposed to trust and have faith. And he wants to be the new authority, the one with all the answers. He asks this question so that now he's the one with the answers. He's the one in charge. And he places himself in Adam's place as the new ruler of the earth. So he floods Eve with lies. And he, he does it again. He floods the woman with lies in this vision as well. In chapter 12, verse 15, listen to this. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his out of his mouth. He spews out, we already know that the uh, waters of the temple have been polluted. He's, wormwood has poisoned the waters. Uh, the, the temple now no longer has life-giving water running out of it. It has poison water. He's poisoned that, and now he spews out false 
Judaizing work salvation doctrine from the temple. This is the flood. It's a flood of lies to seduce the bride once again, to pursue her, to undermine her confidence in the work of Jesus, to undermine her confidence in the word of God. Same thing he tried in the garden. But the inhabitants of the land in this vision are the ones who swallow it up. The Jews of old Israel who weren't united to Jesus, they drink up the Judaizing doctrine. And instead of her drinking up, she's delivered from it and they drink it up. It's a really interesting picture though, isn't it? A deluge of lies, a flood of lies that all the people of the land are drinking up and they're all taking it in, all the lies. They're all just living in this lie and they're loving it and they're just drinking it until their stomachs burst from it. Who's the bride? She's the one not drinking up the flood. She's not drinking the flood of lies. She's separated. She's protected because all the, all the people of the land are, are drinking it up. Striking picture, isn't it? So read the newspaper tomorrow. The flood of lies. Flood of lies. Don't drink it. Don't drink the, the lies. The devil is another name for him here. First uh, Peter 5.8 calls the devil our adversary. The devil is our opponent. The Greek word for devil is diabolos. It means backbiter or slanderer. One of his operations, one of the operations of the devil is to call good evil and evil good, to call wisdom foolishness and to call foolishness wisdom, to make you feel really dumb and to make you feel really awkward for loving righteousness, for wanting to please the Lord Jesus Christ, to, want to, be, to obey God and to believe his word, he wants you to think that that is really, really foolish and that is really dumb and really, really awkward. So he perverts truth so that real wisdom looks like stupidity to his followers. Who, who see the way you live and they see the decisions you make for yourself and they see the decisions you make for your children. And the devil wants to make you believe that you are the foolish one, that you're the one who really is messed up. You're the one that hasn't got anything figured out. And his followers don't hesitate to scoff and make fun of you or to smugly pronounce how disappointed they are in you. That's a word that I've heard more and more over the last few weeks, how disappointed people are in us for the decisions we make and the way we're leading our families and the way we're worshiping and the way we're gathering together to praise the name of Jesus. That I'm so disappointed in you. Well, what made you think that I care what you think about me to begin with? What made you think that I care that you're disappointed in me? I'm not trying to earn your approval. I'm not trying to please you. I am never going to stand before the judgment seat of you. And so I don't care what you think about me. I'm not even sorry that you're disappointed. Why do you think that works on me? What did I do to make you think that I care that you're disappointed in me? Um, I know what you're thinking because you care so much about what people think about you. That is your fuel. That is all you live for is that people think you're a good person and you don't want anybody to not think you're a, you're, you're a good person. That's what you're fueled by. And so you think that holds some kind of power over me to say that you're disappointed in me or that you, 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 you don't like what I'm doing. They think it works because it works on them, but it doesn't work on us. They care about what you think of them but we really don't care what they think about us. And the Lord Jesus, uh, obviously, uh, you, you don't get crucified for having a great reputation among wicked people, right? You get crucified because what you're doing looks really, really foolish. And it looks really, really bad. 
And that, that, is, uh, that, that is how the devil works, though. The devil works in a way to turn truth into lies and to tr- turn truth and, and, and wisdom into stupidity. And the way you defeat the devil, the way you defeat the slanderer is to have the courage to be a fool, to have the courage to look like a fool, to, be, to have the courage to be called a fool and let it roll right off of you. I don't care, you call me. I'll suffer as a fool because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the perishing. I don't expect you to get it. I don't expect you to believe it until the Holy Spirit changes your heart and changes your mind and draws you to the truth. But that's the work of the devil. That's his work. He wants you to think that you're being really foolish when you're pleasing the Lord Jesus. He wants you to feel really dumb when you're obeying him. That's the work of the devil. But he's also, he's got another name here. He's called Satan. Satan is an accuser. Satan is a self-appointed prosecuting attorney. He delights in bringing charges against God's people. He fabricates evidence. He makes accusations against the forgiveness and the security and the faithfulness of God's people. And uh, he, this is how he carries out his mission, to, to, to diminish your trust in the covering of the blood of Jesus. He accuses and accuses and accuses and makes you feel guilty over things you ought not to feel guilty over or things that, that Jesus has already forgiven. And he He's already covered. So these titles and these functions and these descriptions of our enemy are given to us not so that we live in terror of him. Absolutely not. I don't want to give you all these titles. You think, boy, oh no, there's a devil under every corner and under every rock. And uh, I've heard Christians live this way. They think, you know, I had a flat tire today. The, 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 the devil's after me today. The, the garbage bag tour, when I, when I tried to pull it out of the can and spilled coffee grounds all over the, all over the kitchen floor, not today, Satan, you know, uh, you're not going to give me today. You know, that's, that's not the way to live. I'm, uh, this isn't here to put you on defense or to put you back on your heels. In fact, it's here to put you on offense. You know his plays. You know what he's trying to do. You know what he's after. You are not ignorant of his tactics. You know what he's doing. And also, you know what Jesus said when he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need reminding that gates are not offensive utilities. Gates are defensive measures. If the gates of hell are in view, who's on offense? We are which means we actively, deliberately oppose our enemy and do everything to live publicly as soldiers of the cross and not as minions of Satan. All of these things that he does, his people do, his followers do. We refuse to do his work for him and we won't assist him in his work. We won't accuse, we won't slander, we won't spread lies, we won't participate in the works of darkness. Well, that's some information, that's some more stuff that we get on the devil, on the dragon, on our enemy. And then lastly, finally, Uh, Just a few more thoughts about the son who rules with a rod of iron and his war from heaven. Pick up in verse five. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and the angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. After the son has ascended to take his throne, a holy war is initiated from heaven against the dragon. While the woman is protected, all of heaven fights against the enemy. They fight for her and for her protection, for her deliverance. So who is Michael who shows up here? In Jude 9, he's called the archangel. He is the highest angel, the highest angel. In Revelation 10, we saw a mighty angel clothed with a cloud, rainbow on his head, face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire, standing on the land and the sea, and then he roars like a lion. And when we went through all that, I said, who does that sound like? Who has the, who has the, who's clothed with a rainbow and a cloud, who has a face like the sun, who has, has feet like pillars of fire, who stands on the land and the sea, who roars like a lion? Who is it? Well, it sounds like Jesus, right? Who could this be? It's not just any angel. The mighty angel in Revelation 10 is the angel of the Lord, the captain of the angelic army that we see throughout the Old Testament. He appeared to Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and many Bible scholars throughout the centuries, even going back to the early church fathers, say, yeah, the angel of the Lord, that's, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. That's, that's the word of, of Yahweh. That's the messenger of Yahweh. Angel means messenger. And so the angel of Yahweh is, is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord uh, Yahweh. Well, who is then Michael? Where does, well, we see another mighty angel. And Michael means who is like God. That's a phrase that came up in our responsive psalm today, by the way. Uh, when, when Michael appears in the book of Daniel, Michael shows up there and he's called the great prince who stands as the protector of the people of God. He fights on behalf of Daniel. He fights on behalf of his people. In Daniel 10, Michael is described physically the same way that Jesus is described in Revelation 1 and Revelation 10. The, 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 the descriptions are remarkably the same. So my question and my thought is, are Michael, the great prince, the angel of Yahweh, are these all heavenly titles for the Lord Jesus? Are these all, are these all different descriptions for uh, the, the work of Jesus as captain of the army, the, the, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the, of the angels, the army of angels. What, what is the narrative here? What's going on in Revelation 12? The voice from heaven says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And then we ask, well, how does that happen? How do the kingdoms of this world do this? We have a vision now where a woman bears a son who is to rule with a rod of iron to crush the head of the dragon. He ascends to the throne, he initiates warfare with the dragon, and he casts him out of heaven. Afterward, the dragon goes on to pursue the woman. Now, if the son that does this is also called Michael, then we only have three figures in this, in this narrative, three characters all the way through. We have woman, son, and dragon. The son becomes the warrior king of angels. He becomes the archangel. He becomes the, the king of, of, the, of the angelic army, the, the captain of the angelic army. If we say Michael is another angel, then what happens in this narrative is that the son fades to the background. We don't hear from him again, and this angel fights the battle. So it seems reasonable 
something to consider that Michael is another heavenly title for the Lord Jesus. It seems simpler, obviously. And if it's true, then what's being revealed here is how Jesus fights for us. His ascension to heaven wasn't a retreat from reality. It wasn't a retreat from creation. But his ascension was enthronement over the whole world. His, his ascension puts him in a position of supreme authority and supreme power from which he governs and from which he battles. He kicks out Satan. He protects his people. The devil is handed a devastating defeat from which he cannot recover and he lost. The champion is Christ himself. See, after the dragon is defeated, whose name is praised? Uh, it's not an angel. It's not just any ordinary angel. But after the dragon is defeated by Michael, Jesus is praised. In verse 10, salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day to night has been cast down. And with this, a legal proclamation has been made that the kingdom of Christ has come in its power and the former ruler of the world, Satan, has been cast down. How was Satan the ruler of the world? Well, Adam was given dominion over creation, but he just handed it over to Satan in the, in, in the temptation in the garden. He conceded his power over creation to the serpent. He gave serpent rule over creation. But now that the second Adam has ascended, rightful rule has been restored to man and the usurper and the accuser and the dragon is booted. He's out. Well, what does all this mean? Very quickly, let's try to think in terms of the original audience who received this vision. This is a generation of Christians who are living in the space between pagan temples and, and, and pagan um, worship of, of the, the Greek and Roman gods and worship of Caesar on one hand and hostile synagogues who hate Jesus and who hate the worship of Jesus and hate the, the church. And these Christians live in the space between these two poles who are alive and witnessing the collapse of the old world, the collapse of the old covenant before their very eyes. They see this in their lifetime. And standing at this point in history, it would feel like the world is ending, and no matter how this goes down, we are losing. We stand to lose. Now, what does Jesus communicate to his church in that position, living in that, in that situation? He doesn't communicate to his church with three keys to happiness uh, of living at the end of the world. He doesn't, he doesn't give them five tips for how to avoid awkwardness this next Passover. That's not what he does. He gives them this book full of images, this book full of symbols and pictures and signs in the heavens. What they needed more than anything, the Lord Jesus says, what you need more than anything is this picture of a woman about to give birth with a dragon lurking and the sun rising up to defeat him. Meditate on this. Meditate on these signs in the heavens. Why? What do we come away with? When we meditate on this, what do we get? Well, a few things. We learn that we're not on defense. It looks like you're on defense. It looks like you're back on your heels. It looks like you're losing, but you are not. It seems like your enemy's weapons will utterly destroy the church. They will not. Your enemy has lies and he has deceit and he has slander and he has seduction. What does that amount to? What does he have in the end? He has words. He has false words. He has manipulation. He's got, he's got you know, this, this, this psychological operation, but he cannot take your soul. 
He cannot take your soul. He cannot destroy you. And the more that he floods you with his tactics and the more that he floods you with these things, that just shows how much the more fearful he is, the more near his doom. He knows that he has a short time. He knows his doom is sure. And this message that Jesus communicates to his church was true in AD 66, in AD 70, in the year 2021. It's still true. Your king fights from heaven for you. All the kingdoms of the world are becoming his. They don't go quietly. They go with convulsions and they go with calamity. But take courage. The sun has gone up and the dragon has come down and his time is short. And while this happens, you, bride of Christ, are protected, you're fed, you're nourished by him. Take courage and don't lose hope. That's the message we get. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to help us to continue to meditate on these things, to continue to increase more and more in our appreciation, our worship for this king who fights for us. And we give you thanks for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.